Hello, my name is Justin DeClue, and I'm the producer of this Gold Ninja Video Disc, and I'm here today with my co-host on the Important Cinema Club and Jimmy Wang Yu fan, Will Slow. Happy to be here. Always happy to be here. And while this set is dedicated to the director, Cao Pao Shu, I already did a featurette on her. We'll talk about a little bit about her career, but there's not really that much information out there, I think, to fill a 90-minute track. So we're mostly going to be focusing on Jimmy and I think segue into just Hong Kong cinema in general, right? That's right. I have a couple of questions to ask you just off the top. Uh, First of all, I'm curious, what made you choose this film? So originally, when I wanted to do a set dedicated to Cao Pao Shu, because she's one of the only women directors to work in Hong Kong and Taiwan, I mean, that was my main goal. And my the original film that I had was The Master Strikes, which is the last available release that she did, which is kind of a more wacky kung fu comedy thing. And I love that film, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. And it is included as the other feature on this disc. And the only issue I had with that was, one, the title was very generic and it didn't have a hook like Blood of the Dragon and starring Jimmy Wang Yu, which I feel like this film does have. And I should point out here that the actor that Jimmy Wang Yu is fighting is Tie Ye, who was a repertory player with the unofficial Jimmy Wang Yu company, having previously appeared in one Arm Boxer and Beach of the War Gods, which is a great picture. And he showed up in a lot of Jimmy Wang Yu productions, and he actually gets a special appearance credit here. My other question is... What is your relationship with Jimmy Wang Yu? Where did you hear about him? What has been your evolution with him? Because I would bet a good amount of money that it was similar to mine. My relationship to Jimmy Wang Yu is almost non-existent. I never went through a period where I'm like, ah, this is my guy. Yeah, throw on the Chinese boxer or the one-armed Chinese boxer or the one-armed swordsman and I'm just going to have a fun time. This is a cool guy I like to see on screen. My relationship to him has basically been, oh, he's the other guy that's not Bruce Lee that made a bunch of popular movies but then he was a big ass and he fell away from the industry. I think that for casual fans of martial arts movies, There are a couple of facts that are known about Jimmy Wang Yu. People know that he starred in a movie called The One-Armed Swordsman from 1967, which marked the beginning of the golden age of Hong Kong martial arts movies. They know he was Hong Kong's biggest martial arts star until Bruce Lee came along and displaced him. They also know that he helped get Jackie Chan out of a tricky situation with the triads early in his career. And this is a bit of a double-edged sword. This fact taints his legacy somewhat because it also reveals that Jimmy Wang Yu had some pretty close connections with the triads. And we also know that Jackie Chan had to repay the favor by appearing in two of Jimmy Wang Yu's movies, which are some of the stranger movies on Jackie Chan's resume were both widely distributed in the United States, especially in the video store era, and are probably, those two films, Fantasy Mission Force and Island of Fire, probably among the most widely seen Jimmy Wang Yu movies. Now, I want to talk about both of those films because I think they're very fascinating, and one of the reasons I feel they were distributed as much as they were is that Did they fall into like a gray market public domain zone? Because I know that Fantasy Mission Force definitely did because there were bootlegs as far as the eye could see. But didn't the prisoner get a pretty uh, straight ahead, a.k.a. 
Um, is it Island of Fire? I want to say Prison on Fire, but that's the Ringo Land film instead. Yeah, it's called Island of Fire, and it is basically a ripoff of Ringo Lamb City on Fire. It was a Taiwanese production meant as a kind of comeback vehicle for Jimmy Wang Yu in 1990, long after he had fallen out of fashion. Uh, and it was released in the United States by Sony Pictures, I believe, or Columbia TriStar, uh, under the title The Prisoner, or Jackie Chan is the Prisoner. And it has the most generic cover. It's just like Jackie's face, like a painted image of his face. Yeah, and it has an unusually star-studded cast. It has Jackie, it has Sammo Hung, Tony Lung Cafe, and of course, Jimmy Wang Yu himself. I believe in the book I Am Jackie Chan, which is Jackie's ghost-written autobiography, he alludes to having done it as a favor and said, there were all these stars in it. It seemed everybody owed a favor to Jimmy Wang Yu, which, you know, if you read between the lines, what that means is he helped a lot of people out with the triads. Yep. For people that don't know, the Hong Kong film industry, probably half of it was run by triads that if you didn't follow their rules or you didn't follow kind of their directives or pay the money that you needed to set out in the world for protection, then you would be in trouble. And they also did favors for people, a.k.a. everyone that appears in something like Island of Fire. The One-Armed Sword is one of the most important films in the history of martial arts cinema. It came out in 1967, and I would just like to read a quote that Grady Hendrix wrote about the film, which I think helps contextualize it. He said, In 1967, the one-armed swordsman burst onto Hong Kong screens as anti-colonialist riots swept the city. The carnage unleashed in that year turned the city into a war zone. In 12 months, 8,000 bombs, many of them dummies, were diffused by the police. Up until then, Martial arts movies had been discreet, delicate affairs, usually starring women. But director Cheng Che channeled all the righteous anger and bloody fury erupting in Hong Kong streets onto cinema screens with a film that attacked audiences like a rabid dog. The hero of the movie, a blue-collar bruiser who gets his arm chopped off by a teenage girl during a snit fit, and who then has to turn himself into a left-handed human mutilation machine, was Jimmy Wang Yu who could convey an encyclopedia's worth of badassery with a single glower. So that uh, gives a sense of why the one-armed swordsman, which when viewed today seems rather dated indeed, was able to capture the zeitgeist in Hong Kong. It was, I think, the first movie to make over a million Hong Kong dollars at the domestic box office, and it turned Jimmy Wang Yu into the Steve McQueen of Hong Kong. I should point out here, before we jump more into his uh, biography, that the actress that's on screen who's credited as Mrs. Yang is playing by Chan Ching Xia and she acted in a bunch of Taiwanese martial arts film but she also acted with Jackie Chan in To Kill With Intrigue and would later go on to appear in Hao Shu Shen's Summer at Grandpa's, which just goes to show that the Taiwanese film industry is incredibly small and that everybody works in each other's films. And her kind of hero moment there seems to be kind of that perspective that the director, Kao Pao Shu, brings on it. Because it's not the man who uh, saves the woman and says, go, you know, go give the message to somebody else. It's actually the woman that saves the day, which was the kind of antithesis of what the cinema of Chang Che, the director of One-Armed Swordsman, was bringing to Hong Kong, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. So for anyone that's watched any Taiwanese slash Hong Kong martial arts film from this era, you know that producers loved including kids in these pictures. 
So here we have the kind of kid sidekick of this film. He's played by Yu Long, and his career is principally just acting as a kid. He would also appear in Kapow Shu's The Cannibals, but he doesn't really have any other major notable works to his name. He was just a kid that they can put in these films, and when he grew too old, they tossed him to the side. I know that Gold Ninja has previously released a wonderful collection of the films of Pearl Chang, and I think her films really exemplify what, what made the Taiwanese film industry distinct from Hong Kong. They were cheaper incredible to imagine films being cheaper than Hong Kong films at the time, but they were, and they were uh, wackier, a little more anything goes. Jimmy Wang Yu, I mean, if you ask me, I know that he made his career in Hong Kong, but I think the movies of his that I enjoy the most are the ones he made in Taiwan, because they really do feel like they're just like made up on the spot. And speaking of Pearl Chang, she seemed to also owe some favors to Jimmy Wang Yu. Again, the world is a very small place because she appeared alongside Jackie Chan in Fantasy Mission Force, the movie that we mentioned earlier. This is certainly the best known film of Cao Pao Shu. What do you know about her? Does she have much of an authorial identity? She does. So I tried to watch as many of her films that are available. And what's interesting about her directorial career is that it comes after many, many years of working for the Shaw Brothers. So she worked in the film industry for a long time that by the time she even made it to the Shaws, she was a little bit older than everybody else. So if you look at her credits, she has like 80 of them. Almost none of them starring roles, all of them supporting like fifth or seventh credited person. And she doesn't really get talked about that much in martial arts circles beyond the film she directed because she didn't act in martial arts films. She appeared here and there, but she also acted in mostly Shaw dramas or musicals or anything that wasn't really action. And according to the very skinny biographies that I could find on her, she kind of worked her way up through the Shaw Brothers working in the dubbing department. She worked as an assistant director for a bunch of filmmakers until eventually she was given a picture called Lady with a Sword. Oh, I say given. I have no doubt that she fought uh, tooth and nail to get that film because at the Shaw Brothers, they had their stable of directors. They got paid garbage. And the idea of a woman directing is almost unimaginable in a system like that that is essentially a dictatorship that is run by Run Run Shaw. On that note, though, there was a woman who produced almost all the Shaw Brothers films, the wife of Run Run Shaw, Mona Fong, but you don't really get the idea that there was that much of kind of authorial voice as far as Mona's work goes, that she was mostly there to keep it running and to make the Shaw Brothers money. And that was the main thing. And Lady with a Sword is really interesting because it's mostly about the, like, a moral dilemma around the action, about there being an almost impossible situation that physical fighting won't get you out of. And that extends a little bit in Blood of the Dragon in the sense that Jimmy Wang Yu has to make the decision of, oh, someone's trying to kill him, but he won't defeat him through force. He's going to have to accept that, oh, this person is a good guy. How do I move from there? And that also extends in the other martial arts films that she made. It looks like she did do some dramas later on in her career. And unfortunately, again, because those aren't action films, they're not really available. Uh, something else that's interesting is the action in all her films is very consistent. Uh, the way that shot, which is kind of askew, handheld, very in your face, with a lot of style through the camera work and editing. But 
she didn't have the same action choreographers on every film, which shows that she actually extended herself through every position in these films, as opposed to just kind of directing it because she wanted to make a buck. She also co-wrote or just wrote by herself all the pictures that she produced through this company, which she formed with her second husband and only produced the films that she directed. So obviously this was a passion project for her, not just a way to make a quick buck. Oh, jumping off topic while it was briefly on screen a few seconds ago, I should mention that for people that don't know, the thing that the kid was holding was a monetary currency. It's known as a yunbao in Mandarin. It's a small metal ignot that was used in ancient China as money. It was usually made out of silver or gold and the value was determined by the weight in towels, which was their weight measurement. Yunbaos were usually made by the silversmiths for the local exchange. And today, imitation gold ones are used as a symbol of prosperity amongst Chinese people. They're frequently displayed during the Chinese New Year and they represent a fortunate year to come. So, Will, had you had any experience with the films that Cao Pao Xu directed? The only one of her films I can speak to is The Master Strikes from 1980, the supporting feature on this disc. And, you know, it's one of your typical drunken master ripoffs. Has great fight choreography by Ching Su Tung, the future director of A Chinese Ghost Story. Uh, and it's one of those movies that's just so enjoyable while you're watching it and gets no foot traffic in my mind uh, afterwards. I can barely remember a thing that happened in it. I just remember the feeling that it evoked in me. You know, if you told me that the only movies I could watch for the rest of my life are drunken master ripoffs, uh, I, I would be okay with that. I think that that is kind of the challenge with her filmography is that she made a lot of action films, but they fall within the generic confines of these kind of Taiwanese martial arts films. There's no like high concept plots in any of her movies. They're just pictures with very um, recognizable stories that you would see in these types of genre films, but just done really well. And with a flair that you don't usually get out of these films because they have such low budgets, and that you just get the bare minimum. I would say The Master Strikes is one of her lesser as far as like her directorial identity, only because it's like one of her last pictures. You can feel she's kind of handing it off to the action choreographers. It's also very messy in its story structure. But she also has some like really weird ones like The Virgin Mart, which is like an action, almost rape revenge movie. And there's some other ones like that look like pure kind of drama comedies. And I really wish I could see they were made later in her career and they're just not available i couldn't find any copies because thankfully martial arts films get a lot of traffic because they get shared a lot but not anything else that comes out of places like taiwan oh i love this intro to jimmy wang Yu coming into the movie after that first opening sequence 13 minutes which is a very long time this film the blood of the dragon was released on december 8th 1971 in hong kong by the independent company Park Films. Yep, it was the company that uh, Kao Pao Xu and her husband were running. It was not released until December 1973 in the United States when it was actually kind of a hit on the grindhouse circuit. The distributor was called Harnell Independent, whose other imports included a softcore German sex film called Bed Bodies. Um, uh, sorry, Bed, Bed Bunnies. Okay, yeah. The Bed Bunnies fan are like, I you know. got the title wrong! I know, I'm so ashamed. <laughs> There's an interesting story about the, the American distributor of this film, though, isn't there? He was he was kind of like an American porn king. Oh, yeah. He was known as the Scarface of Sex. 
<laughs> and he started a record label called GRC that also to get uh, legitimacy started to kind of distribute films. They did a lot of exploitation pictures, uh, but Blood of the Dragon was their attempt to really tap into the kind of international market. Probably in the midst of the real kung fu boom that was happening, uh, which only lasted about a year or two, but major studios were you know distributing kung fu movies at that time uh inspired by five fingers of death and uh, uh, david carradine on tv and the company that released this they did some interesting stuff in that they hired a guy that was an actual writer william deal to supervise a re-editing and do a new dub track and what's interesting is that they did want their own perspective on it because on this disc you'll actually find two dub tracks the one that the company that um did all of the regular ones was people with new zealand-ish accents doing all the voices and the original score and then the american version which all the lines have been kind of rewritten and they do use all the same names though that's very surprising so it's not like we got to save bob or something like that and this film is mostly remembered for the fact that it has a um out there electronic score by the band called flood which at the time was being repped by grc the distributor of this but that i could find no other reference to other than this film like i don't know if they uh, released any records because if they did i couldn't find them on discogs i also want to just note that the poster tagline in the united states for this film was six feet of silver death one man one weapon one hell of a movie <laughs> that's six feet of silver death just makes you think of like some weird porn kind of title that they had up their sleeve and they just waited to release later on this film was also uh, produced as a desperate chase and i believe that it's an american retitling of blood of the dragon it also made its way to vhs under the title blood of the ninja so I also want to point out that the weapon that we're seeing on screen here, uh, I was looking up like what that is called. You see them all the time in martial arts films. It's like this um, big round thing on a chain. It's actually called a meteor hammer. And it is an ancient Chinese weapon consisting of its most basic uh, level, two weights connected by a rope or chain. It's a flexible or soft weapon. And it was often used as a surprise one because it had a lot of power behind it. The more you know. Got can I just say, doesn't it feel so great to be watching this movie in widescreen? Uh, yeah, because uh, most of the common versions of this are the American full screen. And you can still, if you go on places like eBay, find it. And that's like the top one. This transfer, I believe, was done in Germany. And what's interesting about the German martial arts scene as far as distribution goes, is it seems that like any widescreen film that you kind of stumble upon, and it's an old classic uh, kung fu film, it was rescanned in Germany. Now, I don't know exactly why that is, but if I had to take a guess, I would say there's probably a distribution house or many distribution houses, and they still have the VHS masters in widescreen there. So companies releasing this on DVD can go get them and then put them out in these widescreen versions as opposed to being lost forever to time, which you would assume something like this would be because it was considered disposable, and the Taiwanese kind of film archivist uh, wing didn't really treat this entertainment very well. I should also point out something that I never really thought of as a North American until I spoke to some Chinese speakers when it comes to these kind of pictures is that oftentimes when heroes wear white, it's not just because it looks great when blood is splattered on them, like the Chang Che film Vengeance, or the fact that white presents goodness. In Chinese culture, white 
is associated principally with death and mourning and Chinese wear white at funerals, which would explain why Jimmy Wang Yu here wears white because he is a bringer of death. So getting back to Jimmy Wang Yu, we, why don't we jump into his biography a little bit and like how he got to the uh, one-armed swords. Well, movie. I'm very happy to say that as of December, 2020, when we're recording this, Jimmy Wang Yu is still with us. He is 77 years old. He occasionally appears in films, uh, and he apparently now goes by the name Jimmy Wong Yu with an O. Normally, I would respect how the man wants to call himself, but um, in this case, I'm not going to. I'm just going to keep calling him Jimmy Wang Yu. <laughs> I mean... That I think the only time I've ever seen that is in that Grady Hendrix article that he wrote for KG Shakedown. And he was handed a card by Jimmy Wang Yu and it said Jimmy Wong Yu. Do you think maybe that was like a typo and Jimmy didn't notice? No, no. On his most recent film called Soul, he was billed as Jimmy Wong. Really? So- but nobody's ever called him that. That's the thing. You, you you should respect it, even though I'm not going to today. One thing I do know is that he was born Wang Zhengquan in Shanghai on March 28th, 1943. In his early years, he served a stint in the National Revolutionary Army, uh, and he came to cinema not as a martial arts champion, but rather as a swimming champion. He was on the swim team at uh, the Hong Kong College. By all accounts, he was a, a champion swimmer, very good at it, until... In 1964, he got in a fistfight with some of his teammates and was suspended for six months. Now, this this fistfight incident will be a bit of a recurring incident in his life and career. It seems it seems he is constantly getting into fights, fistfights with people, and to this day is still proud of it. I know you and I both watched Grady Hendrix interview him in 2014 at the Walter Reed Theater in New York, and he was 71 years old in this interview, and he was still bragging about it. Grady Hendrix asked him, have, have you ever lost a fight? And he was thinking to himself, hmm, no, you know, I don't think I ever have. The only time I lost a fight was a few years ago when I was in my 60s and I, I got drunk. That was that was my fault. And I got into a fight with four police officers and uh, and I was beating them, but they had to, they had to taser me to put me down. So I served a week in prison with with no record. I have to say that uh, Jimmy Wang Yu's interview that he did at the New York Asian Film Festival, the one that you're talking about, uh, it's so charming because he is always painted as such a jackass and an egomaniac, which judging by his films, you know, I wouldn't discount, but he's a real like, oh, I'm just happy to be here and tell all these stories and to be as humble as possible. I mean, given all of the criminal enterprises that Jimmy Wang Yu is alleged to have been connected to. I would still be very happy to meet him and shake his hand and and give him a hug and and tell him how much he means to me, even despite all of that. And he'd probably tell you, oh, Will, I'm still strong. Look at me run around this room. You want to arm wrestle or something like that? (laughs) Uh, And he could probably still kick my ass, even even in his late 70s. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely. The guy who plays the general in this film, Yi Yun, is like a lot of people in these pictures, an actor that appeared in 202 roles. But what really popped out at me when I was looking at his credits is that he acted in a film called Attack for Zed from 1981. And what's notable about this is that it was an odd international co-production that starred a very young Mel Gibson, Sam Neill, and John Philip Law in a World War II Men on a Mission film. Now, I had probably seen the cover of this looking through like filmographies, but I kind of passed it by because it looked very generic. It was directed by Tim Bernstall, the guy who made the famous Australian sex comedy Stork. But what's notable about this is that it was co-produced by Central Motion Pictures. 
And so I believe they are a Taiwanese company and they completely staffed the cast of this film, Attack Force Z, with Taiwanese actors, including very famous ones like Sylvia Chan. And Central Motion Pictures would go on to produce films like The Hole, directed by Tsai Ming Lang, and Edward Yang's The Terrorizers. So uh, that's a little fun co-production anecdote alongside of stuff like Hammer and the Shaw Brothers are getting together for the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. So Jimmy Wang Yu uh, kind of just applied to one of those Shaw Brothers, you know, open casting call kind of things. He said he read about it in the newspaper, I believe, and just decided to just check it out. And he got a gig. And, you know, let's talk about the Shaw Brothers a little bit. They are the, you know, giant martial arts masters, just actually just Hong Kong uh, masters of cinema. But, oh boy, were they a terrible factory as well. Well, they were one of a number of companies operating in Hong Kong. They started in the 1950s. The company was founded in 1958 by two brothers, Run Run Shaw and Run Mei Shaw. And these brothers and their family had been involved in the film business for many decades before this, uh, starting in 1925, in fact, when they opened their first cinema in Singapore. They ran a theater chain that at its peak reached over 200 locations across Asia in the 1970s. I mean, I'm sure we could do a whole commentary track going over the evolution of the Shaw's business empire. What's important to know is that in the 50s, Run Run Shaw moved to Hong Kong, and in 1958, opened Shaw Brothers Hong Kong Limited, which was to become the center of the family's film production side. Uh, Run May stayed in uh, Singapore running the theater side of the business. Run Run ran the film production side. So it was a vertically integrated company. They owned the movies, they owned the screening venues, and this was a practice that was modeled on the Hollywood studio system of the 30s and 40s. And while the Hollywood system was kind of crushed uh, thanks to some antitrust laws, that did not happen in Hong Kong. So the Shaw Brothers could still dominate, own their own cinemas, which I should point out, they still own to this day and kind of completely extinguish any competition. For example, the Cathay Company, which eventually just folded under the might and domination of the Shaw Brothers, who were also able to kind of run this labor camp because, you know, based on the descriptive that I gave, they paid the people who worked for them almost nothing. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Shaw Brothers to the evolution of Hong Kong cinema. Hong Kong cinema, its history, it began... Roughly in 1909, I believe, but for the first two decades of its existence, the output was minimal. They mostly imported Hollywood films. Uh, there was a big turning point in 1933. There was a film made in Shanghai called White Golden Dragon, which showed that there was a market for Cantonese films, and can Cantonese is the main tongue of Hong Kong. The Kuomintang government mandated that all mainland films had to be made in Mandarin, which gave Hong Kong producers a monopoly on the Cantonese audiences. Hong Kong is also like a very, it's a very interesting situation because it was and is one of the global financial centers, but it also doesn't have a particular national identity, you know? It, it is Chinese. It was Chinese to some degree because the whole city was basically made up of Chinese refugees, whether from the 1911 revolution or from the rise of the Communist Party in the 40s and 50s. All of the major Hong Kong filmmakers 
their families had roots elsewhere. And Hong Kong was under British rule, which defined the kind of anti-nationality. Like, how do you go away from that? How do you make movies that are representative of something other than the English that are in all uh, positions of authority? In the West, I think that our popular perception of Hong Kong filmmaking really begins with either Bruce Lee or generously Jimmy Wang Yu. There is a wealth of history preceding them. The 1950s are an interesting era of Hong Kong film. I would love to explore it more because not only were there just all sorts of genres, musicals, comedies, melodramas, but there was also a distinct wave of like Cantonese opera movies and socially conscious progressive films because many of the filmmakers in Hong Kong were were leftists after the Second World War. I would love to know more about that. But Shaw Brothers was one of the two big studios that emerged in the 50s. The other one was called Motion Picture and General Investment Company. It doesn't doesn't exist anymore, obviously. Don't know much about it. But it should be pointed out as well that a lot of the martial arts films, which is what us Western audiences kind of think of when we think of Shaw Brothers, that was actually a switch to Mandarin as the language that was spoken on set, and that's usually how they were released. The Cantonese kind of angle was mostly defined by their comedies and the Cantonese angle was also the thing that allowed new companies production companies specifically like Cinema City to dominate over the Shaw Brothers later on in the 70s and essentially destroy them but as I was saying earlier it's hard to overstate how important the Shaw Brothers are to the evolution of Hong Kong on a basic level they introduced widescreen they introduced color photography most of their films were in Mandarin so you know that that was that was very important in setting like the tone of what sort of movies could be made in Hong Kong. They also built this massive studio complex in the Clearwater Bay area, which uh, has been you know much developed and occupied since then. But at the time, it was was basically barren land, and it's incredible. They had thirty outdoor stages. They had twelve sound stages. They have training gyms, and they also had on-site dormitories and apartment complexes for their staff, which is very important because uh, the, most of the staff lived there, basically in in you know I I don't I don't know if I want to use the term indentured servitude, but I'm going to. Uh, the Shaws introduced these personal contracts that were draconian. Very low wages. But that were based also on the Hollywood contracts of the so-called golden age of the studio system. Stuff like, we own you for eight years and you can't do anything else. Yeah, the difference is, though, that Humphrey Bogart got to live in a nice house. <laughs> That's but, true. But these people, like the big stars, like Jimmy Wang Yu was making something like 200 Hong Kong dollars a month. You know, not not great. I believe that Jimmy Wang Yu said that he did live with his parents at the time. <laughs> While he wow, was lap of luxury. starring in stuff like um, One-Armed Swordsman. And you wouldn't even get a bonus if your film was successful. You'd still get the same pay. You'd only get a bonus if you acted in a movie or you directed a movie or did another task on it. You get a couple extra hundred bucks for that. Needless to say, Run Run Shaw was very diligent in ensuring that employees could never form a union. And, I mean, the studio was able to just churn out hundreds upon hundreds of films and many with production values that could rival 
much better funded national cinemas. I mean, Japan at the time made films that were much slicker than most Hong Kong films because they had a much bigger domestic audience to work with. Uh, but but the Shaw Brothers films, particularly the martial arts films, look awfully good. But we should say that for anybody that has seen a bunch of Shaw Brothers movie, they do do a bunch of different genres. But if you look at a bunch of martial arts films in quick succession, they do often fall within this cookie cutter framework that like the style and the kind of directorial authority, especially the ones directed by Chang Che, they fall into a rhythm of the way the camera moves, the way the sets look, a lot of indoor stuff. So when we compare it, for example, to a movie like this, which is all outdoors, has a gritty look to it, it's almost directed in an anti-Shaw Brothers style versus the kind of house style that the Shaw Brothers made their own. Yeah, you watch a lot of those Shaw Brothers movies and you get a little bit tired of seeing that same courtyard set over and over and over again. There's that carpet that's in all of their movies. I wonder where that carpet is today. I do get, feel a little bit claustrophobic if I watch too many Shaw Brothers movies. And, you know, as we're saying this, everything that made the Shaw Brothers great and powerful would have led to the seeds of its self-immolation. I should say, too, though, that the Shaw Brothers' rise coincided with the rise of Hong Kong as one of the global capitals uh, of the world and also Southeast Asia. Because it was a British colony, it was easier for the Shaws to get quality equipment and film stock from the West, much easier than it would have been in the mainland. There was also very minimal government regulation and censorship, and Asian colonies at that time, oddly enough, in the 50s and 60s, were not a big market for Hollywood product. There weren't enough theaters in Asia to really be worth Hollywood's time. And the colonies also typically had quotas and import licenses uh, when it came to American product. So Hollywood focused on Europe. Hong Kong became the Hollywood of Asia. And this was important because unless the movie was really inexpensive, it probably wouldn't make back its profit in Hong Kong alone. No, Taiwan was the market that like the Shaw brothers really relied on for making back their money they would invest in one of their pictures. And they did care, like any company, even though they were pumping out so much, they really didn't take that many chances because they wanted to make sure that the stuff that they did fit a certain level of quality or whatever was popular. They would just churn out a whole bunch of them and they would wouldn't pay anyone else bonuses or anything else to feel special, even if the people that made it had a hit. And it should be pointed out that what's interesting about the Shaw Brothers is that for a long time, they had almost no Western penetration on the home video market. Now, you have stuff like 36 Chambers of Shaolin that was released in North America as Master Killer or a King Boxer, which was released as Five Fingers of Death. But that's pretty much it. Most of their catalogs were locked in vaults until the early 2000s when Celestial took over and started releasing stuff on DVDs. The Shaw Brothers catalog was just unknown to even martial arts film fans because it just wasn't a available. It just hadn't gotten any English dubbed releases. And man, when Celestial started releasing it, it seemed like, I mean, I don't know if you ever walked into like a Chinatown video store in the mid 2000s. You know <laughs> of, course, of course you did. I mean, they would just be packed with, with so many of these movies. Holy shit. And not just martial arts films, just like, you know, weird sex films and horror films and you know, musicals. The Shaw Brothers are kind of like Toho in that sense, is that they had a really like 
firm grip on their catalog to their detriment, at least historically, because people couldn't see the movies and kind of fill out their own canon. I remember hearing a story that one of the guys that uh, did a commentary on their early wave of releases said that the Shaw Brothers wouldn't even let them see the movies they were going to do commentary on, and that a lot of them they just had never seen. <laughs> so if you listen to that early like dozen releases, you hear English language voices reacting to stuff that they had never seen. And specifically, I'm thinking of like the anonymous heroes, which was a Chang Che picture that starred uh, Dick Lung and David Chang, but just had not gotten any kind of Western release. So no one could really appreciate it. And the Shaw Brothers acted so weird about it, almost as if they were afraid it was going to leak and just be shared all over the place. I mean, stuff like King Who's Come Drink With Me did get like released in the West and did get seen, but that is the exception to the rule. There was also the Black Belt Theater TV program that played in, in the U.S., which I think played a lot of or, or a fair amount of Hong Kong films that would play on like local or, you know, uh, it, it was syndicated to TV stations in the afternoon. So a lot of like Gen Xers grew up watching bad pan and scan versions of like mad monkey kung fu or that sort of thing uh there was also of course inframan the great uh hong kong superhero film which you know anybody who has seen it thinks of very fondly and there was mighty peking man the the original title being goliathon (laughs) which did get a release through everyone's favorite quentin tarantino's rolling thunder pictures There's so much to explore in the Shaw Brothers. It's actually kind of intimidating, you know, just 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 how much there is. I know you and I recently got really into like, um, I, uh, I, I'm forgetting his name. What's the name of the horror guy who did the Boxers Omen? Kuei Ching Hung is the name of the director. Oh man, so yeah, like in the '80s, Hong, uh, like the Shaw Brothers, which made these very like you know, gentlemanly martial arts films was just making the grimiest, grossest horror films at at incredible budgets, you know, just beautiful. With titles like Corpse Mania, where it's like, I gotta see this. But and unlike uh European Italian films, they did those ones specifically didn't really get dubbed and released. So uh the director Kuei Ching Hung, he uh doesn't get talked about too much. I mean he's getting talked about more because his stuff is making it to Blu-ray, but he only made like one or two martial arts films, and that was the main export if you were ever gonna see something out of the Shaw Brothers. So it kind of fell between the cracks. Cause it was like, how do you release um, you know, stuff like musicals from the Shaw Brothers into other uh, territories. They just don't. They don't even try. That guy ended his life, by the way, working at a pizza restaurant in Los Angeles. <laughs> Not just working. I think he managed a pizza restaurant. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> but I have to thank the fact that the martial arts films did at some point travel to North American circles because that allowed cults to be formed and fan groups to really continue talking about it through the years. If the Shaw Brothers hadn't focused on martial arts, which was something that was really easy to sell internationally because action is a language that everybody speaks, I don't think that we would be talking about the Shaw Brothers right now because we wouldn't have an entry point that the martial arts films allow us to go through. 
But so, yeah, so the Shaw brothers, like you were talking about before, the way they kind of self-destructed is that they were so set in their ways that when stuff kind of turned, they were kind of like the Hammer Studios, is that they could not shift far enough to change their business model or the way they made films to cater to a market that was kind of falling in love with the stuff that like Choi Hark was releasing through Cinema City, which had a completely new angle on this Hong Kong product that the like something so fresh and raw. And, you know, I would never call a Shaw Brothers movie raw <laughs> or grounded because that's not really what they did. They had that kind of Hollywood like gloss to all their stuff. So it does get interesting near the end of their production run when you get films like Bloody Parrot, which filled with crazy violence and nudity. But it's just kind of odd. It's kind of like grandpa rapping or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that it's like, oh, he's trying, but it just it just doesn't feel right. So eventually the Shaw brothers just shifted completely to television, turning their studio space into kind of, you know, doing daily martial arts soap operas and stuff like that. And they were able to kind of keep running under that umbrella, but they stepped away from movies. They make movies here or there. I know that the Stephen Chow film Out of the Dark is a Shaw Brothers production, but they were never the titan that they were for all of those decades during the golden age of Hong Kong cinema. We're telling this story a little bit out of order because I think it's important to say what led to their downfall or what the initial seeds for the downfall were, which will bring us back to Jimmy Wang Yu. In 1970, two executives at the Shaw Brothers, Raymond Chow and Leonard Ho, left to form a rival company, Golden Harvest, and Jimmy Wang Yu went with them. The Shaws were an, an incredibly mighty force. They owned all the good theaters. They employed all the top talent. But as you can see, that sheer force opens certain vulnerabilities. Not everyone wants to sign their life away for a couple hundred dollars a month. Jimmy Wang Yu, after uh, One-Armed Swordsman, he was a star, but the Shaw brothers wouldn't budge on giving him any more money. And he, before he went with Golden Harvest, he threatened to leave unless they gave him a director's job, which was his first effort for the Shaw's, The Chinese Boxer, which I think is a great movie. <laughs> and speaking of the style of the Shaw brothers, it does everything in its power to break out of it, being dynamic. The camera is always moving. The editing is rapid fire. It is... Jimmy Wang Yu, I would say as much as he is a presence as a screen actor, is even stronger as a director because he's always trying new stuff within the confines of just the, you know, kung fu genre. Wait, I should point out, so Lung Fei that's on screen right now, if you're watching this and you're like, oh man, that guy in black, he looks very familiar. Well, that's because that's Betty, the bad guy from Kung Pao, Enter the Fist, which was a film directed and starring by Jimmy Wang Yu, the original film that the, uh, Steve Odekirk then took and recut, uh, the film being called Tiger and Crane Fist, aka Savage Killers. Uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, for a guy that seems to have such a big ego and be difficult to work with, uh, he worked a lot with the same people, with Lung Fei appearing in a lot of his pictures, including classics like Master of the Flying Guillotine. Yeah, I mean, I know that Jimmy Wang Yu goes down in history as, like, being an egomaniac, but, I mean, you know, compared to Bruce Lee, I'm sure he was, like, an absolute pussycat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact that people continue to work with him as much as they did, I find that, like... Either they did it because Jimmy Wang Yu thought that if he continued the brand that made him successful, and we'll get into the fact that, man, he just kind of ripped himself off over and over again. 
Uh, so he wanted to keep these people close to him or he was just a um, loyal person. Like if you stuck by him and you helped him make these movies, probably under difficult circumstances, he would stick by you and he would give you jobs. In that interview that he did at the New York Asian Film Festival, he talks about that when he went to Golden Harvest, he was finally able to pay people what they were worth and give them bonuses if the movies were successful. Yeah, you know, I'm going to come clean like 40 minutes into this movie that uh, Jimmy Wang Yu has never really been one of my favorite like actors or martial arts personalities like isn't he no, d- me neither <laughs> that's why i never had that much of a high opinion of him isn't he like kind of a wet blanket on the screen to you don't you think he is he sometimes looks in these movies that like, he's got like a little bit of a teen stash going on like a fake kind of beard going to make him look more badass yeah and i don't know maybe you had to be a teenager in like 1968 hong kong like having just lived through a bunch of riots to appreciate the james dean of hong kong but I mean, I don't know. It's not for Compare me. Compare him to the icons of cool coming out of Japan, which people like Chang Che and Jimmy Wang Yu ripped off endlessly as directors. Uh, someone like Toshiro Mufune, like that's a badass. Jimmy Wang Yu, eh, not so much. The Shaw Brothers look was really like the boyish kind of good looking kid, kind of like the matinee idol that would then be transposed into all of these action films. Nevertheless, you know, you, you can't argue with Jimmy Wang Yu's filmography. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, but. I mean, pound for pound, you know, how many people have as many classics? How many people have given you as many indelible moments as Jimmy Wang Yu? Especially when you consider that he did them all under basically duress, that most of his career seemed to be like trying to chase a hit under uh, circumstances that were very difficult. We mentioned that he went to this open call audition that was held by the Shaw brothers. That audition, according to Jimmy Wang Yu, was run by a low-level flunky at the company, a guy named Chang Che, who was not yet very well established, would go on to become one of the most celebrated directors in Hong Kong film history. Supposedly, you know, according to Jimmy Wang Yu, supposedly of 4,000 people who auditioned, the winner was Jimmy Wang Yu. Uh, and, you know, who knows if it was 4,000, maybe it was 40, you know, who knows? I don't know. I wasn't there. But uh, he was signed to an eight-year contract. The first few films that he made for the Shaw Brothers were not big successes. It, you know, it's interesting looking at the history of martial arts film. It was, you know, Grady Hendrix is right. It was a, a quite genteel genre before this. Uh, there, there was the long-running Wang Fei-Hung series based on the life of the famous Chinese folk hero and herbalist that ran something like 99 films, and they were all like very uh, formulaic and cliche. But the other ones were very much like in the Chinese opera tradition. In 1965, the Shaw brothers introduced this exciting new initiative. They called it their Color Wuxia Offensive. Even though that the first film that Chang Che made uh, was in black and white, as Jimmy Wang Yu said. Right. So, you know, studio publicity said, Shaw's will break with tradition, creating a new vista for martial arts films. The fake, fantastical, and theatrical fighting, and the so-called special effects of the past will be replaced by realistic action and fighting that immediately decides life or death. And, you know, that wasn't really the case. Uh, a number of them were just, just kind of like any other martial arts films. The only one of these 
that anybody knows or remembers is King Who's Come Drink With Me, which was also the most successful at the time. And then came the One-Armed Swordsman. And in that interview with Grady Hendrix, Jimmy Wang Yu said, I was a new face. I knew nothing about movies, but everything Chang Che asked me to do felt right. It felt comfortable. We all felt like something was different with this movie. Before we made it, the swordplay in the films was like Chinese opera. One, two, left, right, bow your head, do a jump. But we were doing real fighting. And that real fighting was thanks to action choreographers Lockhart Long and Tong Gai, who became Chang Che's guy before they both broke off to be directors themselves. And they kind of redefined what action in Chinese cinema was. But I should also point out that when Jimmy Wang Yu says, ah, things are different now, they're changing. It was also a prerogative of Chang Che's to make Hong Kong or... Chinese cinema to be more male dominated because before then the fantasy movies and stuff like that they were very much led by women performers now oftentimes they played men but it was known as more of a feminine genre especially the kind of fantasy stuff adaptations of green snake and other Chinese mythological texts and Chang Che and Jimmy Wang Yu I don't want to say they felt threatened by that, but uh, they definitely reacted to it. And Chang Che has talked about in interviews like, I wanted to bring the machismo back to the action film. And oh boy, the day until, you know, it reached the, um, let's say, homosexual angle, if you will. The boys are back in town. I get the feeling watching this film that it was a clear attempt of Cao Pao Shu as a director and producer of paying her own money to make these films, she wanted to follow certain trends like the Jimmy Wang U pictures, casting him and his co-stars from the other film. She also got the writer, Ni Quan, to script this picture, and he was one of the most prolific Shaw Brothers writers around, having penned One-Armed Swordsman, 36 Chambers of Shaolin, even like trash like the Killer Snakes. He has over 200 credits to his name, and I believe I heard an anecdote that he was one of those guys that if you gave him a job, he'd write it in a few days, give it to you, and say, I am not doing any more drafts of this. This is what you got, and I'm moving on to the next thing, which would explain how he was able to write so many pictures. He would continue to work with Cao Pao Shu, penning the screenplays for The Cannibals, which was a follow-up to this, and the much later film, The Jade Fox, both of them being period martial arts films, which were clearly his specialty. Now, The One-Armed Swordsman, the Shaw Brothers didn't have a huge amount of faith in it. It was dumped onto the market, but it succeeded mostly by word of mouth. And as I said earlier, it became the first domestic production to make over a million dollars, Hong Kong dollars, at the box office. And so, then came more collaborations between Jimmy Wang Yu and Chang Che and fight choreographer Lau Kar Lung, who later became a great director in his own right. And throughout all of this, Jimmy Wang Yu kept making $200 a month. And I like if you look at their early filmography, you can feel some that they, yeah, they weren't too comfortable with. For example, Golden Swallow from 1968, the year after they made The One-Armed Swordsman, was technically a sequel to Come Drink With Me because it starred uh, Chang Pei Pei playing the same character who teamed up in that film with Jimmy Wang Yu. No, it's not that that they want to do. They want to make macho films. So it took a few pictures before they eventually got to that point. The, uh, the One-Armed Swordsman was a very important and influential film, but probably even more important, even though it's maybe less known today, is the Chinese boxer from 1970. 
Jimmy Wang Yu was eager to expand his horizons, wanted to branch out into directing. He'd seen a number of Japanese films that featured hand-to-hand combat, and he wanted to try something like that, a movie where Chinese kung fu would face other nationalities' martial arts systems. (laughs) Oh boy, this would come to define Jimmy Wang Yu's cinema, which is essentially he created the idea of what people think of when they think of Mortal Kombat, or all of the wacky uh, kind of fighters from around the world oftentimes in brown face or black face well you know it, it wasn't just mortal Kombat. he also laid the ground for bruce lee and we'll, we'll get to that in a sec but this premise seems like a no-brainer now but run run shaw didn't trust him to direct even chang che said uh what are you doing you know you do sword play movies you're really good at swords why do you want to do hand-to-hand combat also they didn't understand why jimmy wang Yu, who was a big star wanted to direct they were like don't you already have enough like why do you want more but eventually jimmy wang Yu just said i will i will quit uh, unless unless i'm allowed to direct and so you know, he was a real cash cow at the time. There were many one-armed swordsmen or one-armed uh, something or other movies that were being made. So they let him do it. And the result was The Chinese Boxer, which is really the first modern kung fu movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talked about it earlier in the sense of like how it feels, especially under Jimmy Wang Yu's direction. Like you watch it now, it still feels fresh. And the antithesis of what we associate with the classical Shaw Brothers uh, style. And the film was was also released in America under the title The Hammer of God. But I don't think it was as big a hit as, I mean, it definitely wasn't Five Fingers of Death, which would come out a few years later. Around the time that that, that the Chinese boxer came out was when Golden Harvest started. Jimmy Wang Yu had a lot of loyalty to, to Raymond Chow, the executive who co-founded Golden Harvest. He said that, you know, Run Run Shaw never protected me. Run Run Shaw always took advantage of me. Raymond Chow, he protected me. So he wanted to join with Golden Harvest. And Raymond Chow and Leonard Ho had basically been like whispering in people's ears, like at the Shaw Brothers, because there were many eight-year contracts. There were many eight-year contracts that were starting to run out. And they were saying, hey, you know, this is pretty bad, isn't it? Why not come with us when we start our rival company? This led to a lot of drama because word eventually got back, of course, to Run Run Shaw, who was like, what what, what the hell's happening here? So I haven't found exact confirmation for this, but looking at the chronology of the films that Jimmy Wang Yu made, it seems like one of the big breaking points in his relationship with the Shaw Brothers was his insistence of making a film in Japan with Zadoichi, which would then be released uh, as Zadoichi meets the one-armed swordsman and was not a uh, Shaw Brothers sanctioned project, which I think really pissed off Run Run Shaw and led eventually to the to the dismissal of Jimmy Wang Yu. Yeah, if people don't know who Zadoichi is, he was a character played by Shintaro Katsu across something like 30 or 40 movies in Japan between the 60s and the late 80s. He was a blind swordsman. And one of those films from the early 70s was uh, Zadoichi Meets the One-Armed Swordsman, which... The 22nd film in the series, to be exact. uh, Completely unauthorized. Nothing, uh, no approval from the Shaw Brothers. Complete copyright infringement still available today i'm happy to tell you you can <laughs> on get the it in criterion that... <laughs> box set <laughs> exactly exactly yeah when jimmy wang Yu w- wanted to go leave the shaw brothers and join with golden harvest 
he was five years into an eight-year contract, so he said, uh, you know, what do you do when you're in a situation like that? You publicly break with the Shaw brothers. You say, I'm out, I'm out. Call all the newspapers, I'm out. And, of course, this was in flagrant violation of a contract, so he fled to Taiwan. He was in very serious trouble for doing this. And because he was still under contract, he was not allowed to make anything in Hong Kong for the next three years of that contract. So he could only work in Taiwan. So this was Golden Harvest's big new star. And he wasn't even in Hong Kong. So I believe that when he fled to Taiwan, he still somehow pulled out another movie even before he started working for Golden Harvest, because his second directorial effort, The Brave and the Evil, from 1971, was directed by him, it was written by him, it starred him, but it was produced by Union Film. Didn't have anything to do with Raymond Chow. So even in his exile, he was still able to whip a film together. And this one is interesting as well, because it co-starred Polly Shang Kwan Ling Feng, who had starred in the King Hu film, Dragon Inn. So even at this time, Jimmy Wang Yu was trying to partner himself with a woman who could act alongside him. His ego wasn't big enough to kind of exclude someone he knew was a star, had been in a popular film, as long as it was of the Taiwanese variety and didn't have anything to do with the Hong Kong cinema. But he kept acting in Taiwan, basically where he was exiled, and he did do some Golden Harvest projects there, didn't he? Yeah, he moved back and forth between independent productions and Golden Harvest productions. I know in that interview that we watched from the New York Asian Film Festival, he said that he would do Taiwanese productions for money and then he would make films for golden harvest for no money at all you know just out of loyalty to raymond chow again who knows if that's true but that's what he says <laughs> there's nobody uh to say differently now jimmy wang Yu is the last man standing uh run run shaw ran out of virgin blood to drink and died at what the age of 112 or something like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah just recently and in the early 70s Jimmy Wang Yu was very prolific. He was making many, many films because, you know, if you spent five years making minuscule amounts of money per month living with your parents and you're suddenly getting offered million dollar contracts, you're taking And it's weird that a lot of them seemingly piggybacked on his earlier successes, but I'm sure that was just coincidences with films like Fury of the King Boxer, the One-Arm Boxer, the uh, tons of One-Arm Swordsman movies, including an insane one that stars multiple One-Arm Swordsman. Yeah, just like uh, playtime with all of those different Hugh Lowe's. And uh, Shaw Brothers, when Jimmy Wang Yu left, they reacted like spoiled babies who had been wronged because they trashed him in the press and they tried their best to make movies that starred the new Jimmy Wang Yu, a.k.a. David Chang, who I like a lot. But it's really funny that they turned around with a movie starring David Chang called the new one-armed swordsman, this one better than any of the other ones. And David Chang would end up in Taiwan as well to star in that one-armed swordsman movie with Jimmy Wang Yu, both of them playing one-armed swordsman. Now, in the early 70s, Golden Harvest had launched as a competitor to the Shaw Brothers. Raymond Chow and Leonard Ho were in a very difficult situation at that time. Their, their biggest star was on the run in Taiwan, and Shaw Brothers owned all of the good movie theaters in Hong Kong and abroad. You know, they had real first-class operation. So 
basically Golden Harvest only had the the lesser, the secondary theaters at their disposal, and they didn't have a lot of other stars to work with. And the most important single move they made early on was signing Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. I would say that probably defined and or saved their company, wouldn't you? And in fact, I think that really more than anything led to the downfall of the Shaw brothers because Bruce Lee... Uh, who at that point had been established but struggling in Hollywood, came to Hong Kong, you know, hoping to be kind of like Clint Eastwood going to Italy, you know, may, make make a couple of movies and then get some money and pay off some debts and maybe this will launch him to better things elsewhere. And Shaw Brothers gave him the standard deal, the standard bad deal that it would have given anyone. Golden Harvest gave him a better deal. Uh, he made those films you know, they became the big boss and Fist of Fury outgrossed any of the Jimmy Wang Yu films and uh, the rest was history. And let's talk about that for a second. We s- said that Jimmy Wang Yu, not much of a presence on screen, especially in these films. I mean, he's a badass. His characters are badasses. He's definitely like strong when it comes to the action sequences, even though he. I mean, we love him. We're pro Jimmy, you know, uh, but <laughs> I would say that his films pound for pound are more fun then those early Bruce Lee films and or any Bruce Lee movie. <laughs> I mean, Enter the Dragon's good, but uh, y- yes. I mean, what would I rather watch? Would I rather watch the One-Armed Swordsman or the Big Boss? I mean, no contest. <laughs> Sorry, not the One-Armed Swordsman. One-Armed Boxer from 1972. Oh, that's, now that's a good a one. Film, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And wasn't Jimmy Wang Yu supposed to uh, appear in a film with Bruce Lee at some point? You know, I don't think that was actually the case, but what happened was... Uh, the the film that became A Man Called Tiger was originally supposed to be a Bruce Lee vehicle. It's important to say that Jimmy Wang Yu and Bruce Lee in the early 70s had a very big public rivalry that was very much egged on in the Hong Kong press. And it was even tacitly encouraged by Golden Harvest, which saw this as like good business. Of course, because their badasses are feuding with each other. It just makes them seem more like a badass. As long as they never actually fight or anything like that, you can just keep kind of like, you know, amping it up. It's the classic superhero thing. Who would win in a fight, Bruce Lee or Jimmy Wang Yu? And the kids on the playground will pick their sides. Yes, uh, me and the kids on the playground were always asking each other who would win. Bruce Lee or Jimmy <laughs> Wang Yu? Listen, I'm talking about, uh, you don't have to view this through your North American perspective, Will. <laughs> There's playgrounds around the world. This feud was, you know, it was not just publicity. Bruce Lee genuinely disliked and disrespected Jimmy Wang Yu. He didn't think he was a real martial artist. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't. <laughs> Bruce thought he was the real deal. And it's like, like, like what, what's this bullshit? I'm going to come in and I'm going to blow him out of the water. And Jimmy, for his own part felt that he was the better all-around athlete than Bruce Lee was. He said, you know, what's the di- what's the big deal? Like, I can do swords, I can swim, I ride horses, you know, I'm, I'm I, where you know it's what? at. And based on no other information than that and watching uh, each other in films, I would say Jimmy Wang Yu is probably the more all-around athlete than Bruce Lee. Because Bruce Lee was specifically good at a number of things, but you feel the way that he trained his body and, you know, what eventually ended up killing him uh, would make him not as well-rounded as someone like Jimmy Wang I Yu. I mean, Bruce Lee regarded film very differently than Jimmy Wang Yu did, or later Jackie Chan did. Bruce Lee regarded film primarily as a venue for which to express his philosophy of the martial art. <laughs> yeah, that I'm the best, me, Bruce Lee, and I'm going to make movies about that. <laughs> I mean, that's an uncharitable rating of it. 
but you know, uh, um, <laughs> but a true reading, but a more charitable reading uh, is that he believed very strongly in Jeet Kune Do, which was mm-hmm. this martial art that he developed that was a synthesis of all other martial arts. I mean, I'm sure anybody listening to this who cares about martial arts films knows this, but Bruce Lee felt that. All, all the traditional styles, kung fu, karate, they were all too beholden to, you know, their their tradition. They they wouldn't survive in a street fight. And Bruce Lee hated the insular nature of these martial arts. That, like, you did one specific kind of martial arts, you stuck to those shapes and forms, and you didn't break out of it because you thought whatever you were doing was the best, and everybody was weaker than that. And Bruce Lee believed, I mean, everybody who's listening to this knows this, but, like, if you mixed all of them together and picked the best parts so they could complement each other then you would genuinely have the best martial arts which was very much disliked by people who would focus on one specific style and dedicated their whole life to that but incredibly influential it's really a precursor to modern day mixed martial arts <laughs> which me and will watch all the time <laughs> yeah yeah just just love it i mean the bruce lee films are interesting to watch after you've watched a lot of other hong kong martial arts movies because you know, Bruce Lee would always argue, you know, understandably, you, you, you can see you can see his side to it that like, well, like pretty much the only person who should challenge me on screen is the big boss at the end. Because if I'm if I'm getting into a 10 minute fight with like every henchman on Hans Island, uh, like, and, and why am I the hero? Like, <laughs> I mean, uh, Bruce, let me give you a lecture on dramatic structure. <laughs> so, you know, as a result, in Enter the Dragon, he 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 kills like 100 henchmen until finally the final battle with Han. If you get really into martial arts movies through like the Yuen Wu Ping, Jackie Chan style of filmmaking, where it's all about. Um, you know, the acrobatics of it and all about the showmanship of it. Like the peaking opera kind of roots of it. Yeah, like Bruce Lee is very much the opposite of that. He believed that an effective martial artist should have as little movement as possible. It should be very direct and clean. Which, when you kind of approach Bruce Lee's film at first, that is so refreshing to see such a charismatic badass kind of beat people down. And then like, even by the end of his very short filmography, you realize the limits to that approach. And yet, there's no arguing with Bruce Lee as a screen presence. I mean, oh, none at all. Incredibly charismatic. It's too bad he didn't live long enough to make a few better films. <laughs> I don't think he could have survived with his sweat glands removed. <laughs> <laughs> there's an old joke when you watch Hong Kong martial arts pictures, even swordplay ones, that if characters ever enter a tavern and or restaurant, there will be a fight that takes place. And that has been the case almost with every picture I've ever seen because I guess the sets are standing are really easy to get and it's a good place to get a whole bunch of people together. And in the end of this picture here, it's kind of turning into its own miniature Dragon Inn, which was a template that these movies went back to again and again, which is a tavern location that is sieged by a number of baddies. In this case, it's much smaller than most of those pictures are, probably because Cat Pao Shoe is not really working with that big a budget, but I think that it's very effective in just getting you on Jimmy Wang Yu's side, taking on all of these baddies. Just a little bit more about Bruce Lee's feud with Jimmy Wang Yu. Uh, I, I read in Matthew Pauly's book about Bruce Lee, his wonderful biography, that when Bruce Lee returned to Hong Kong after filming The Big Boss in Thailand in 1971. He told the Hong Kong press, and I'm quoting, 
I know everyone has seen Wang Yu's performances in other films. The Big Boss will be in theaters soon, so I invite everyone to watch it and make their own comparisons. Isn't that better than for me to try to brag? <laughs> Furthermore, after Jimmy Wang Yu made Zatoichi Meets the One-Armed Swordsman, Bruce Lee actually sought a meeting with the actor who played Zatoichi, Shintaro Katsu, about a possible collaboration. And this was entirely because Bruce Lee was so incensed that Jimmy Wang Yu was his rival. You know, this guy wasn't even a real martial artist. You know, he like this guy's nothing. I should be making a movie with Shintaro Katsu. So what, he went what out would and met that with movie him. have been? Like Bruce Lee just knocks Zatoichi at the beginning with one punch. I mean, the the collaboration came to nothing because as uh, you know, Shintaro Katsu was under contract to you know to his studio, and you know it, it just it just wouldn't have worked out. Probably the most important collision of the two men is that. Jimmy Wang Yu was took a film that Bruce Lee turned down, which was originally titled Yellow Face Tiger and eventually released as A Man Called Tiger. This was directed by Lo Wei, the director who directed the first two Bruce Lee films, The Big Boss and Fist of Fury. And instead of making this film, Bruce Lee went and made Way of the Dragon, his directorial debut in Rome. And these were both fish-out-of-water action movies. A Man Called Tiger was set in Japan, and they were released in very close proximity to each other. And so this was a kind of, like, collision, you know, going head-to-head. Like, who's... who's? And we know who won, because we continue to talk of, about A Man Called Tiger to this day. <laughs> right, Will? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, no, folks. Way of the Dragon made over $5 million in Hong Kong. And then a month later, A Man Called Tiger made about $2 million and... You know, all question of who the bigger star was. I mean, the the thing with Jimmy Wang Yu is that you almost get the sense that he was willing to do almost anything to keep going, because unlike Bruce Lee, he didn't have a focus on like, I am the best, I am the most awesome, and I must win in all of my movies. Even looking at something like Blood of the Dragon, something really interesting about it is that the way that the story is structured is that Jimmy Wang Yu is so badass that he gets injured early on, and he lives with that injury for the rest of the movie, which keeps him from just kind of dominating everyone, which is a really funny and interesting way to approach this kind of Hong Kong action movie. Also, Jimmy Wang Yu is like less of a purist than Bruce Lee, so there can be more showmanship, more funny shenanigans. I'm a big fan of a movie, I don't know if you've ever seen it, called Return of the Chinese Boxer from 1977. There's a scene in that movie where at one point he randomly fights zombies that just like show up out of nowhere. (laughs) Well, I think Jimmy Wang Yu, in an attempt to make his films as entertaining as possible, which is probably the difference between him and Bruce Lee, I would say. The idea of like, what would the audience want? His films got mighty wacky as they kept going. And we'll get to the most famous one later on. But I also want to point out that something interesting about Jimmy Wang Yu is that he fell into the Golden Harvest attempt at cross-pollination by working with other production companies and releasing international co-productions. Now, this had happened earlier on with the Shaw Brothers, uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, uh, that starred David Chang and a bunch of people that was done with the Hammer Studio, the horror studio out of Britain. But Golden Harvest, they did a bunch of kind of like James Bondy action movies with like Stoner was one of them. And the one that Jimmy Wang, you starred in, The Man from Hong Kong, which I know that me and Will are big fans of. I just wish that Bruce Lee could have lived long enough to star in. (laughs) 
But would it be the same movie? I mean, the film directed by Brian Trenchard Smith, an Australian uh, genre god. When I read interviews with Jimmy Wang Yu and he said stuff like, oh, I directed the action. The movie made a lot more sense at that point, looking at the rest of Brian Trenchard's action um, filmography. Because while Trenchard Smith, I get the sense, was a big fan of that style, those action scenes in that movie, and there's a lot of them, definitely have that Hong Kong flavor that I think only Jimmy Wang Yu could have brought to it. If Bruce Lee had starred in, in it, I think it would have been a completely different film and probably one not as fun. Him coming after like Enter the Dragon and Game of Death when his ego is more massive than it has ever been. The man been. from Hong Kong also benefits from some fight choreography by a fresh-faced young fight choreographer by the name of Sammo Hung. And we should point out that Sammo Hung was always one on the outskirts of the Shaw Brothers as well. He worked in Taiwan mostly for people like King Hu and did work quite a bit with Jimmy Wang Yu as well because, you know, they were running in the same Taiwanese circles. But I think that when people hear Jimmy Wang, the big movie that they think of is, you know what it is, right, Well, Are you going to say Fantasy Mission Force? No, I was going to say Master of the Flying Guillotine. Oh, of course. I, I mean, you know, Master of the Flying Guillotine, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, it's really fun, I would say. <laughs> it has a lot of what uh, I've heard people say call basher action which is like jimmy wang and the other people in the films kind of like flailing their arms around in the air <laughs> as action scenes as opposed to striking any forms or stuff like that but it did kind of define what kung fu cinema is in the mind of american audiences for a long time because it has so much kind of um iconic stuff even though it must be noted that the flying guillotine is a shaw brothers creation there is a film called the flying guillotine i think there's some sequels too and jimmy wang you just ripped it off for his own version and uh, the flying guillotine is exactly what it sounds like it's a big uh, guillotine on a string that people uh, throw and it cuts off somebody's head and it uh, zooms back by the way i was just recently uh watching a clip of siskel and ebert on the johnny carson show it was from the early 80s and roger ebert makes a random assault on master of the flying guillotine they're like why they're like talking about like movies they dislike and then roger ebert says something like well you know it's better than movies like master of the flying guillotine where you know you go into theaters where your your feet sticks on the ground because the ground's so sticky or you know whatever yeah if you go and in one of those urban cinemas we know what you're talking about roger ebert. that's why roger ebert is in hell now <laughs> You would think that they would look at stuff like Master of the Flying Guillotine and be like, oh, it's a throwback to the fantastical cinema of Georges Méliès, where anything could happen and the way that physicality could be portrayed on screen would go beyond the human imagination instead of, oh, no, this is a film that they watch in, like, the black part of towns because <laughs> they're very popular there. Um, Master of the Flying Guillotine is also a beautiful uh, portrait of Jimmy Wang Yu's ego because he wrote, he directs, he produces, and it stars Jimmy Wang Yu and Jimmy Wang Yu. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen the film, Jimmy Wang Yu fights himself in the climax of the picture. Now, just like Replica. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Um, I think he plays like three roles in Master of the Flying Guillotine. That's wild. I'm sure on set he's like, Bruce Lee would never do this, would he? This is typical of the Taiwanese phase of Jimmy Wang Yu's career, which lasted throughout the 80s and eventually, or throughout the 70s, I mean, and eventually brought diminishing returns. You know, the movie, the movies got pretty silly. <laughs> what do you mean? You didn't enjoy one-armed chivalry fights against one-armed chivalry, which is another one-armed film, not the one that we mentioned before. <laughs> yeah, he was he was a lot like um oh god what's the name of that like mgm uh starlet who who made a lot of like uh underwater musicals oh yeah i know exactly who you're talking about and i can't think of the name but you know what they used to say about her they said you know wet she's a star dry she's nothing two arms you know he's just some guy that used to be a swimmer one armed he is a force that can't be reckoned with i have to applaud the ending of this picture which it starts at about like 112 here and it's one long action scene right up until the end jimmy wang you knows what the audience wants and so the credited action choreographer on this is chang yi kuei who again like a lot of taiwanese actors was very prolific has about 13 action credits to his name but nothing that really pops out at me and this kind of action style i almost associate more with jimmy weighing you than anyone else because he definitely brings his own brand to things just like i said that the man from hong kong definitely feels jimmy weighing you-ish this action is a good example of the kind of stuff that he does there's some fantastical weapons here like that whip sword that christopher gaunt would steal i mean homage in the final sequence of Brotherhood of the Wolf. I tried to look up what the name for this sword is, and in Brotherhood of the Wolf, it has the same texture, except in that one, it's bone that hides the whip sword. But I couldn't find an exact name, and I actually haven't really seen it that often in these kind of films. So I want to talk just briefly about his connection to Mr. Jackie Chan. And this is one of the things that he's best known for in the West. A figure who unites Bruce Lee and Jimmy Wang Yu and Jackie Chan is the director Lo Wei. I mean, we mentioned earlier that Lo Wei directed A Man Called Tiger, but he also directed Jackie and Jimmy in the classic that no one has ever forgotten, The Killer Meteors. That was a movie that when Jackie Chan became popular in America after Rumble in the Bronx, you found it in every bargain bin. (laughs) Wait, has that one been remastered by any Blu-ray company yet? Not yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Oh, yeah, any moment now. Uh, So, Lo Wei, he was a one-time actor who became a journeyman Hong Kong director, worked for the Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest. Very prolific, very respected in the industry. Not particularly talented. I mean, nowadays he's most remembered for having you know slapped during takes and he was listening to the to the races on his radio you know looking at his racing form during shots that's what people say about him anyway but he stumbled into immortality because he directed those first two bruce lee movies the big boss and fist of fury bruce lee and jimmy wang yu uh or sorry bruce lee and lo wei had a famously contentious relationship they would bash each other in the press a lot. Lo Wei would often claim that he taught Bruce Lee everything he knew. <laughs> Eventually, uh, Lo Wei would start his own production company, and Jackie Chan was a lowly stuntman and bit part actor when, in 1976, Lo Wei plucked him out of obscurity, signed him as his, his big star. Jackie Chan was going to become the next Bruce Lee, and they made a number of films. This is very central to Jackie's origin myth. You hear it everywhere in every book about jackie chan 
Loway tried to turn him into a tough, snarling hero in the Bruce Lee mold, and it wasn't until 1978 when he was loaned out to the independent producer Eng Siyun and made two kung fu comedies, Snake in the Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master, that the rest was history. What do you mean? It didn't work in films that, like, unofficial sequels along the lines of New Fist of Fury? Then why do I own the Blu-ray on my shelf, Will? Uh, the New Fist of Fury Blu-ray from 88 Films is en route to me right now. It contains <laughs> yep. two cuts of the film. I'm sure I'll watch both. Oh my god. <laughs> you, you know, it, it, I clearly have some sort of sickness because New Fist of Fury was a movie that I saw it. It was at Roger's video for some reason when I was a teenager. I saw it as a teen really didn't like it then thought it was one of the worst mm-hmm. movies i'd ever seen now i'm gonna own it on blu-ray <laughs> my opinion has not changed all of these films we rewatch them now and it's like oh yeah this is great like even low way jackie chan's collaboration spiritual kung fu it's like oh look at these great fight scenes in oh, here fuck, i love spiritual kung fu you compare that to the stuff yeah, that jackie's they're... making now but remember when we were teenagers and we just dismissed spiritual kung fu out of hand after watching a crappy pan and scan I know, version? I know. Um, anyway, when Jackie made it big, he was still under contract to Low Wei and being both loyal and, you know, somewhat naive, he unwisely signed a new contract. Meanwhile, Golden Harvest came knocking, offered him a luxurious new contract that gave him a stratospheric salary, creative control, big budgets. Jackie was prepared to break his contract with Low Wei, but he was unwise and trusting and signed a blank contract. Low Wei altered the penalty fee to something insane, something like $10 million, which of course he couldn't afford, and thus came a dispute. And how did the dispute get solved? Like gentlemen, right, Will? There, there are conflicting stories of what happened, and it's funny. Jackie Chan has written two autobiographies now, I Am Jackie Chan and Never Grow Up, one one was the first one was made for the American market and the second one is a translation from one that was made for the Chinese market and the story changes drastically uh, in those two versions and uh, the name Jimmy Wang Yu only appears in the first version. <laughs> I wonder which one is true. The one that Jackie made, you know, uh, through a ghostwriter, just telling him what actually happened, or the one that was probably uh, poured over by mainland Chinese censors before its publication. So in the first version, Lo Wei is heavily mobbed up. He's very much affiliated with the triads. And so Jackie, who's now working, he's broken his contract. He's going to work with Golden Harvest, doesn't know how he's going to pay off Lo Wei or whatever, but he's making the young master. He starts getting harassed by triads. His life is under threat. And Willie Chan, his manager, no relation, tells him that Jimmy Wang Yu, his old friend, his old co-star, is going to try to work this out between Lo Wei golden harvest and the sun Yi on triad according to the book jackie quote unquote you know it's actually his ghostwriter but jackie says the summit meeting between Lo, jimmy wang Yu, and sun Yi on had apparently not gone well the news wasn't clear but there had been some sort of altercation that had ended that it ended with the gathering being broken up by the police. Whatever happened, we don't know. Um, according to Jimmy Wang Yu, everything worked out. Uh, and I'm quoting from his interview with Grady Hendrix now at the New York Asian Film Festival. Uh, Jimmy Wang Yu said that, you know, like he, he tore up the contract and Lo Wei cried and said, what, what will I do? And Jimmy said, I have a plan. Jackie will offer you one free movie. Golden Harvest will pay all the budget. But this film must be distributed by Golden Harvest. 
And so as a result, Lo Wei made money. I don't know how this is true. I don't know what movie he's talking about. I feel like at one point I read somewhere that like Jimmy Wang Yu came at Lo Wei with knives in hands. Maybe some kneecaps were injured, but I feel like, uh, yeah, a variation of that story. Probably one with violence is the real one. But eventually Lo Wei got paid a certain amount of money from Golden Harvest. The triads backed off. Jimmy Wang Yu claims that he got two million Hong Kong dollars from Golden Golden Harvest for for his trouble. Uh, we know that Jimmy Wang Yu was helpful in at least some way because Jackie Chan eventually repaid the favor by appearing in two of Jimmy Wang Yu's films, Fantasy Mission Force and Island of Fire. And both of them were surprisingly, um, there was a big time gap between them because Fantasy Mission Force came out in 1983, a Taiwanese production directed by Chu Yang Ping. And then Island of Fire came out in 1990, also directed by Chu Yang Ping. I like to imagine Jackie's like, listen, Lo Wei, if I owe you a favor, I only want to work with the best. Get me Chu Yang Ping as the director. This is something that people might actually not no, is the Chu Yan Ping is like like the biggest schlockmeister. Like if you look up hack in the dictionary, you get a picture of Chu Yan Ping. He's the king of Taiwanese shit. <laughs> oh yeah. If there is a small child doing martial arts farting, uh Chu Yan Ping probably directed it. It should be pointed out that both of those movies that Jackie did as a favor, he barely ap- appears in them. It's really like a two, three days of shooting. I also like don't want to disrespect Chu Yan Ping because I am the world's biggest Chu Yanping fan, and I actually don't think I actually don't think that's an exaggeration because I have sought out Chu Yanping films, which I don't think anybody else has done. You know what? You've probably uh, watched more than me. Oh, no, that's not true. What am I saying? But you have watched <laughs> the one where uh, there's three Charlie Chaplins that star in it. Yeah, that's that's right. That's called the the four sheepish dummies. <laughs> and you watch like the world's shittiest transfer. squinting through like just tracking lines barely any color uh, to make out subtitles that you can't even read so anyway i will tell you what the other version of this story was which is in jackie's more recent memoir no mention is made of the triads only that that low way had altered the contract and the explanation and it's very strangely delivered because most of the book is from jackie's voice but every now and then there will be an interlude from his co-writer's voice who will like just add commentary and the co-writer mentions that apparently at the low way studio there was a lonely uh, or a lowly janitor who was working there who was ordered by low way to alter the contract and he said that he would testify on jackie's behalf and because of this he was able to get out of the contract oh yeah I'm glad that, um, you know, people stood up for each other and that's how this uh, bad people were taken down. No violence or organized crime or anything like that. Uh, Poor Jackie. (laughs) And by poor Jackie, I mean bad Jackie. He's bad now. But getting back to Jimmy Wang Yu... You know, after the like Fantasy Mission Force, the film that he produced, he barely acted in any other movies. His career as kind of a star just faded from view. After that, he acted in Shanghai 13, a kind of mega production made by Chang Che, who at that point was directing really impoverished films outside of the Shaw Brothers system. He also appeared in Samuel Hung's uh, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, uh, Millionaire's Express, taking over a role that was offered to the original uh, Wang Fei Hung in that like long running hundred film series. Jimmy Wang Yu ended up playing Wang Fei Hung. But after that, he kind of disappeared off the map. And it wasn't until uh, Dragon 
the Peter Chan film that came out in 2011 that he had like a big meaty supporting role. I know in the 80s, when Grady Hendrix asked him, he said that he opened a department store, you know, he went into business and he failed. And that's basically all he said about it. So I'm sure that would have hurt his finances quite a bit. And much like any star, he eventually went out of fashion. He also made a lot of bad movies. His explanation for that was, listen, I was making $200 a month for forever. People were offering me million-dollar contracts. Of course I'm going to take them. Eventually, though, as you as you said, uh, there, were, there were a couple of comeback movies, very sparse, very occasionally. I mean, he was really known throughout the 70s and 80s as being like the George Raft of Taiwanese cinema. Like, he was closely connected to the triads you know he often made the gossip columns for you know various relationships and broken marriages and (laughs) drunken fights yeah 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 but his most notable recent film was that film dragon by peter chan also known as wuxia starring donnie yen which is a stealth remake of the one-armed swordsman mm-hmm. and apparently jimmy wang you refused to use a stunt a stunt double for you know it. what i watched the movie after i heard him say that and yeah i believe him it's basically him in every shot of that fighting which is fairly simple and wire assisted but you know he's an old man <laughs> to throw himself up and do that we saw donnie yen speak once and he he talked he <laughs> talked about this saying after a screening of that, that's right and he said something like yeah, you know, we we had some difficulties with that final fight scene because Jimmy Wang Yu, you know, he, he he's an older gentleman at this point, so we kind of had to work around him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, especially if he's refusing a stunt double, which is not usually how Hong Kong films are made. But shortly after the production of that film, he had a stroke, uh, which ironically paralyzed one part of his body, one side of his body. So he truly was the one-armed swordsman at that oh, point. Oh, I don't mean to laugh, but yeah. As of when 2014 came around, when he did that interview in New York, he was running across the stage. He was showing how much he had recovered. And in the early 2010s, he acted in a number of films. He was in Andrew Lau's big-budget martial arts extravaganza, The Guillotines, cast as a bit of an homage to Master of the Flying Guillotine. He was also given a rare starring role in a Taiwanese thriller called Soul, for which he won Best Actor at the Taipei Film Festival. And that is his last film to date from 2013. I haven't seen that one. Now I want to check it out. What is a dramatic uh, Jimmy Wang Yu look like in his old age? (laughs) Like giving a non-action performance. You know what? I betcha. Very Max Rose-like. That's one for people that listen to the Important Cinema (laughs) Club. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Jimmy Wang Yu, I think that since I've become a fan of Hong Kong cinema, I've only grown to appreciate him, especially his independent spirit and what he was able to deliver on a directorial level. Like I kind of dismissed him as a presence because I didn't grow up with him and he wasn't a big enough kind of force just that like something like the one-armed swordsman would have an impact on me. But like watching stuff like the Chinese boxer made me completely kind of reevaluate him as an artist and as someone who could deliver entertainment and you know i'm really glad that i was able to go through that journey i know you've been feasting on jimmy wang Yu movies lately what are some of the ones you would recommend uh beach of the war god definitely i just watched that this week and i absolutely loved it that's like his seven seven samurai riff. it is epic it has tons of action and it's kind of artistically filmed there's this wild climax that takes place on a beach that's like 
by a windmill and like the light is going through the windmill. Yeah, Beach of the War Gods is great. Uh, Shout Factory, I believe, uh, put out a Jimmy Wang Yu kind of DVD set that has a lot of his hits that he made independently in Taiwan. And Beach of the War Gods and a lot of the like, I believe One Arm Boxer is also on that set. So I would recommend anyone that wants to explore the hits of Jimmy Wang Yu to check out that set. I feel while there may not be as many classic Jimmy Wang Yu films as other people like Jackie Chan have, the Jimmy Wang Yu brand is strong in even some of his weaker films. Because as he had to make his way on his own, his kind of style of choreography continued to be seen in all the pictures that he made. Because you even look at a film like this, Blood of the Dragon, and the action is very specific in the way that it's presented. And you can also see it in stuff like Man from Hong Kong. The Jimmy Wang Yu brand, even though that it was often one-armed person fighter style, he did have this bloody, you are there, in your face, basher style, which means that there are no forms in the moves, that he would make his own. And I think that once you see all of the big ones that we just mentioned, like the ones that he directed, which have his very particular stance in it, I think that even dipping your toe in some of the other films that he starred in is worth it to continue to see that brand evolve and take different shapes, which is always a little bit sloppy, but that's kind of what's great about uh, the Jimmy Wang Yu films is that sloppiness. There's fun to be had there. I think uh, The Man from Hong Kong is the one you should check before anything else. And then also, you know, Fantasy Mission Force, uh, you know, it, it, it absolutely rules. What's not to yeah, like? I mean, Fantasy Mission Force is a favorite of me and Will's. We will never stop recommending it, even though that some people who have watched it, a.k.a. Will's friend when he was a teenager and he showed it to them, reacted in pure bafflement. Yeah, you know, it's strange. I mean, how could you not like Fantasy Mission Force? And, and yet it has happened. That interview that he did with Grady Hendrix in 2014 did reveal a couple of other funny anecdotes. I can't believe we didn't get around to, to mentioning this, but he did almost make a film. In fact, he started making a film with Oliver Reed. Fred Williamson? Toshiro Mifune. It was called The New Spartans, and it was being made in 1975. Big international co-production. Oh, it also starred Patrick Wayne, who is the son of John Wayne. And... It was allegedly a parody of Men on a Mission films done in the style of Blazing Saddles, so I'm sure it would have been absolutely hilarious. Financing fell through and production shut down after nine days. But it was also directed by Jack Starrett, who made the amazing Ride with the Devil and Hollywood Man. So, I mean, knowing it was going to be like a comedy uh, makes me go, ugh. But to see all those actors on screen, that would have been such a delight. And... What's really important to know is that even though it shot for nine days, that was still enough time for Jimmy Wang Yu to get in a fist fight with Oliver Reed. They got into a fight at a bar after production one day. They had to be separated. Jimmy Wang Yu said, it's a good thing they separated us because I probably would have had to go to jail if I were allowed to keep going. <laughs> you know, I would just love to be a fly on the wall during that encounter. I mean, Oliver Reed, uh, not the most stable of men either. Uh, you know, if we were kids on the playground, I think that... Hmm, that's tough. I, I would think that maybe Jimmy Wang Yu would win. <laughs> yes, I think Jimmy Wang Yu would probably beat Oliver Reed. <laughs> beat a drunken giant Oliver Reed. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what would have happened. I do wonder sometimes what Jimmy Wang Yu's legacy will be in the general popular consciousness and how it is somewhere like Hong Kong or even Taiwan. 
does he still get talked about as a big star? I mean, the One-Armed Swordsman was a massive hit that continues to be remade all the time. Like we mentioned, Dragon, the Donnie Yen film that Jimmy Wang Yu co-starred, is a stealth remake of that picture. Or has he kind of fallen through the cracks of history? Because it feels that way in North America, where Bruce Lee still on top, but Jimmy Wang Yu, other than in the context of Master of the Flying Guillotine, doesn't really get talked about that much. So I'm glad that we could put together commentary like this, which could highlight one of his movies, and hopefully people will explore more of his filmography and kind of discover the fun stuff that he did in the same way that me and you did, Will. God, there are just so many beautiful images on the screen right now. This has been one of our least scene-specific commentaries, but it's just been a wonderful film to have on in the background. I think it's a film that can be easily forgotten or misremembered or make the viewer picking up the Blu-ray case go, did I see this? Because its plot is similar to so many other pictures. But I think Cao Pao Shu with Jimmy Wang Yu makes something that is so pure in its execution and it feels so direct that it is its own special product that in the end doesn't really feel like anything else when you're experiencing it. It's only with the issue of memory and the fact that a genre is something that has been done a bunch of times that, you know, people don't always hold this film in high regard. And personally, I think that they should. So uh, thanks again for listening. And uh, thanks, Will, for doing this commentary track with me. Oh, pleasure as always. Anytime. Peace. <laughs>